Chapter six of Storky and Co. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Storky and Co. by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter six A Little Prep. Easter term was but a month old when Stetson Major, a day boy, contracted diphtheria, and the head was very angry. He decreed a new and narrower set of bounds. The infection had been traced to an outlying farmhouse, urged the prefect severely to lick all trespassers, and promised extra attentions from his own hand. There were no words bad enough for Stetson Major, quarantined at his mother's house, who had lowered the school average of health. This he said in the gymnasium after prayers. Then he wrote some two hundred letters to as many anxious parents and guardians, and bade the school carry on. The trouble did not spread, but one night a dog-cart drove to the head's door, and in the morning the head had gone, leaving all things in charge of Mr. King, senior housemaster. The head often ran up to town, where the school devoutly believed he bribed officials for early proofs of the army examination papers, but this absence was unusually prolonged. "'Downy old bird,' said Storky to the Allies one wet afternoon in the study. "'He must have gone on a bend and been locked up under a false name.' "'What for?' Beetle in to entered joyously into the libel. Forty shillings or a month, for hacking the chucker out of the pavy on the shins. Bates always has a spree when he goes to town. Wish he was back, though. I'm sick of King's whips and scorpions and lectures on public school spirit. Yah! And scholarship. Crass and materialised brutality of the middle classes, reading solely for marks. Not a scholar in the whole school, McTurk quoted pensively boring holes in the mantelpiece with a hot poker. "'That's a rather sickly way of spending an afternoon. Stinks, too. Let's come out and smoke. Here's a treat.' Storky held up a long Indian cheroot. "'Bagged it from my pater last holidays. I'm a bit shy of it, though. It's heftier than a pipe. We'll smoke it palaver fashion. Hand it round, eh?' Let's lie up behind the old harrow on Monkey Farm Road. Out of bounds. Beastly strict bounds these days, too. Besides, we shall cut. Beetle sniffed the cheroot critically. It's a regular pomposo stinkador. You can, I shan't. What do you say, Turkey? Oh, may as well, I suppose. Chuck your cap on, then. It's two to one, Beetle. Out you come. They saw a group of boys by the notice-board in the corridor, little Foxy, the school sergeant, among them. "'More bounds, I expect,' said Storky. "'Hello, Foxibus. Who are you in mourning for?' There was a broad band of crape round Foxy's arm. "'He was in my old regiment,' said Foxy, jerking his head towards the notices, where a newspaper cutting was thumb-tacked between call-over lists. "'By gum!' quoth Storky uncovering as he read. "'It's old Duncan. Fat Sow Duncan. Killed on duty at something or other Kotal, rallying his men with conspicuous gallantry. He would, of course. 
body was recovered. That's all right. They cut him up sometimes, don't they, Foxy? Horrid, said the sergeant briefly. Poor old fat sow. I was a fag when he left. How many does that make to us, Foxy? Mr. Duncan, he's the ninth. He come here when he was no bigger than little grey Tertius. My old regiment, too. Yes, nine o' us, Mr. Cochrane, up to date. The boys went out into the wet, walking swiftly. Wonder how it feels to be shot and all that, said Storky, as they splashed down a lane. Where did it happen, Beetle? Oh, out in India somewhere. They're always rowing there. But look here, Storky. What is the good of sitting under a hedge and cattin? It's beastly cold, and it's beastly wet. We'll be collared as sure as a gun. Shut up. Did you ever know your Uncle Storky get you into a mess yet? Like many other leaders, Storky did not dwell on past defeats. They pushed through a dripping hedge, landed among water-logged clods, and sat down on a rust-coated harrow. The cheroot burned with sputterings of saltpetre. They smoked it gingerly, each passing to the other between closed forefinger and thumb. "'Good job we hadn't won a piece, ain't it?' said Storky, shivering through set teeth. To prove his words, he immediately laid all before them, and they followed his example. "'I told you,' moaned Beetle, sweating clammy drops. "'Oh, Storky, you are a fool!' Je cat, tu cat, il cat, nous catons. McTurk handed up his contribution, and lay hopelessly on the cold iron. Something's wrong with the beastly thing. I say, Beetle, have you been dropping ink on it? But Beetle was in no case to answer. Limp and empty, they sprawled across the harrow, the rust marking the ulster, their ulsters in red squares and the abandoned cheroot end reeking under their very cold noses. Then, they had heard nothing, the head himself stood before them, the head who should have been in town bribing examiners, the head fantastically attired in old tweeds and a deer-stalker. "'Ah!' he said, fingering his moustache. "'Very good. I might have guessed who it was. You will go back to the college and give my compliments to Mr. King and ask him to give you an extra special licking. You will then do me five hundred lines. I shall be back to-morrow. Five hundred lines by five o'clock to-morrow. You are also gated for a week. This is not exactly the time for breaking bounds. Extra special, please." He disappeared over the hedge as lightly as he had come. There was a murmur of women's voices in the deep lane. Oh, you Pooroosh and brute!" said McTurk, as the voices died away. "'Storky, it's all your silly fault!' "'Kill him! Kill him!' gasped Beetle. "'I can't! I'm going to cat again! I don't mind that, but King'll gloat over us horrid! Extra special! Oh!' Storky made no answer, not even a soft one. They went to college, and received that for which they had been sent. King enjoyed himself most thoroughly, for by virtue of their seniority the boys were exempt from his hand, save under special order. Luckily 
he was no expert in the gentle art. "'Strange how desire doth outrun performance,' said Beetle irreverently, quoting from some Shakespeare play that they were cramming that term. They regained their study and settled down to the imposition. "'You're quite right, Beetle,' Storky spoke, in silky and propitiating tones. "'Now, if the head had sent us up to a prefect, we'd have got something to remember.' "'Look here,' McTurk began with cold venom. "'We aren't going to row you about this business, because it's too bad for a row. But we want you to understand. You're jolly well excommunicated, Storky. You're a plain ass.' "'How was I to know the head had collar us? "'What was he doing in those ghastly clothes, too?' "'Don't try to raise a side issue,' Beetle grunted severely. "'Well, it was all Stetson Major's fault. "'If he hadn't gone and got diphtheria, it wouldn't have happened. "'But don't you think it rather rummy, the head dropping in on us that way?' "'Shut up, you're dead,' said Beetle. We've chopped your spurs off, your beastly heels. We've cocked your shield upside down, and, and I don't think you ought to be allowed a brew for a month. Oh, stop jawing at me. I want— Stop! Why, why, we're gated for a week! McTurk almost howled as the agony of the situation overcame him. A licking from King, five hundred lines, and a gating. Do you expect us to kiss you, Storky, you beast? Oh, stop rotting for a minute. I want to find out about the head being where he was. Well, you have. You found him quite well and fit. Found him making love to Stetson Major's mother. That was her in the lane. I heard her. And so we were ordered a lickin' before the day-boy's mother. Bonny old widow, too, said McSturk. Anything else you'd like to find out? I don't care. I swear I'll get even with him some day," Storky growled. "'Looks like it,' said McTurk. "'Extra special, week's gating, five hundred, and now you're going to row about it. Help scrag him, Beetle!' Storky had thrown his Virgil at them. The head returned next day without explanation, to find the lines waiting for him, and the school a little relaxed under King's Viceroyalty. Mr. King had been talking at and round and over the boys' heads, in a lofty and promiscuous style, of public school spirit and the traditions of ancient seats, for he always improved an occasion. Beyond waking in two hundred and fifty young hearts a lively hatred of all other foundations, he accomplished little, so little indeed that when two days after the head's return he chanced to come across Storky and Co., gated but ever resourceful, playing marbles in the corridor, he said that he was not surprised, not in the least surprised. This was what he ex had expected from persons of their morale. "'But there isn't any rule against marbles, sir. Very interesting game,' said Beetle, his knees white with chalk and dust. Then he received two hundred lines for insolence, besides an order to go to the nearest prefect for judgment and slaughter. This is what happened behind the closed doors of Flint's study and Flint was then head of the games. Oh, I say, Flint, King has sent me to you for playing marbles in the corridor and shouting alley tor and knuckle-down. What does he suppose I have to do with that? was the answer. Dunno. Well, 
Beetle grinned wickedly. What am I to tell him? He's rather wrathy about it. If the head chooses to put a notice in the corridor forbidding marbles, I can do something. But I can't move on a housemaster's report. He knows that as well as I do. The sense of this oracle Beetle conveyed all unsweetened to King, who hastened to interview Flint. Now, Flint had been seven and a half years at the college, counting six months at a London crammer, from whose roof he had returned homesick to the head for a final army polish. There were four or five other seniors who had gone through much the same mill, not to mention boys rejected by other establishments on account of a certain overwhelmingness, whom the head had wrought into a fair shape. It was not a sixth to be handled without gloves, as King found. Am I to understand that it's your intention to allow board school games under your study windows, Flint? If so, I can only say, he said much, and Flint listened politely. Well, sir, if the head sees fit to call a prefect's meeting, we are bound to take the matter up. But the tradition of the school is that prefects can't move in any matter affecting the whole school without the head's direct order. Much more was then delivered. Both sides a little losing their temper. After tea, an informal gathering of prefects in his study, Flint related the adventure. He's been planning for this for a week, and now he's got it. You know as well as I do that if he hadn't been getting at us the way he has, that young devil, Beetle, wouldn't have dreamed of marbles. We know that, said Perone. But that isn't the question. On Flint's showing, King has called the prefects names enough to justify a first-class row. Crammer's rejections, ill-regulated hobbledy-hoys, wasn't it? Now it's impossible for prefects. Rot, said Flint. King's the best classical cram we've got, and tisn't fair to bother the head with a row. He's up to his eyes with extra two, and the army work that as it is. Besides, as I told King, we aren't a public school. We're a limited liability company paying four per cent. My father's a shareholder, too. And what has that got to do with it? said Venner, a red-headed boy of nineteen. Well, it seems to me that we should be interfering with ourselves. We've got to get into the army, or get out, haven't we? King's hired by the council to teach us. All the rest's gumdiddle. Can't you see? It might have been because he felt the air was a little thunderous, that the head took his after-dinner cheroot to Flint's study. But he so often began an evening in a prefect's room that nobody suspected when he drifted in pensively, after knocks that etiquette demanded. Prefect's meeting? A cock of one wise eyebrow. Not exactly, sir. We're talking things over. Won't you take the easy chair? Thanks, luxurious infants you are. He dropped into Flint's big half-couch, and puffed for a while in silence. Well, since you're all here, I may confess that I'm the mute with the bowstring. The young faces grew serious. The phrase meant that certain of their number would be withdrawn from all further games for extra tuition. It might also mean future success at Sandhurst, but it was present ruin for the first fifteen. Yes, I've come for my pound of flesh. I ought to have had you out before the Exeter match. But it's our sacred duty to beat Exeter. Isn't the old boys' match sacred too, sir? said Perone. The old boys' match was the event of the Easter term. We'll hope they aren't in training, 
For now, the list. First, I want Flint. It's the Euclid that does it. You must work deductions with me, Perone. Extra mechanical drawing. Dawson goes to Mr. King for extra Latin, and Venner to me for German. Have I damaged the first fifteen much? He smiled sweetly. Ruined it, I'm afraid, sir, said Flint. Can't you let us off to the end of term? Oh, impossible. It'll be a tight squeeze for Sandhurst this year. And all to be cut up by those vile Afghans, too, said Dawson. Wouldn't think there'd be much competition, would you? Oh, that reminds me. Crandall is coming down with the old boys. I've asked twenty of them, but we shan't get more than a weak team. I don't know whether he'll be much use, though. He was rather knocked about, recovering poor old Duncan's body. Crandall Major, the gunner? Perone asked. Oh, uh, no, the miner. Toffee Crandall. In a native infantry regiment he was, before your time, Perone. Oh, the papers didn't say anything about him, sir. We read about Fatsow, of course. What's Crandall done, sir? Oh, I brought over an Indian paper that his mother sent me. It was rather a hefty, I think you say, piece of work. Shall I read it? The head knew how to read. When he had finished, the quarter column of close type. Everybody thanked him politely. Good for the old coal, said Perone. Pity he wasn't in time to save Fatsow, though. That's nine to us, isn't it? In the last three years. Yes. I took old Duncan off all games for extra two five years ago this term, said the head. By the way, who do you hand over the games to, Flint? Haven't thought yet. Who would you recommend, sir? Uh, no, thank you. I've heard it casually hinted behind my back that the Pushan Bates is a downy bird, but he isn't going to make himself responsible for a new head of games. Settle it among yourselves. Good night. And that's the man, said Flint, when the door shut, that you want to bother with a dame school row. I was only pulling your fat leg, Perone returned hastily. You're too easy to draw, Flint. Well, never mind that. The head's knocked the first fifteen to bits, and we've got to pick up the pieces, or the old boys will have a walk-over. Let's promote all the second fifteen, and make big side play-up. There's heaps of talent somewhere that we can polish up between now and the match. The case was represented so urgently to the school that even Storky and McTurk, who affected to despise football, played one big side game seriously. They were forthwith promoted ere their ardour had time to cool, and the dignity of their caps demanded that they should keep some show of virtue. The match team was worked at least four days out of seven, and the school saw hope ahead. With the last week of the term the old boys began to arrive, and their welcome was nicely proportioned to their worth. Gentlemen cadets from Sandhurst and Woolwich, who had only left a year ago, but who carried enormous side, were greeted with a cheerful Hallo, what's the shop like? from those who had shared their studies. Militia subalterns had more consideration, but it was understood that they were not precisely of the true metal. Recreants, who, failing for the army, had gone into business or banks, were received for old sake's sake, but in no way made too much of. But when the real subalterns, officers and gentlemen full-blown, who had been to the ends of the earth and back again, and so carried no side, came on the scene strolling about with the head, the school divided right and left in admiring silence. And when one laid hands on Flint, 
even upon the head of games, crying, "'Good heavens! What do you mean by growing in this way? You were a beasted little fag when I left!' Visible halos encircled Flint. They would walk to and fro in the corridor with the little red school sergeant, telling news of old regiments. They would burst into form-rooms, sniffing the well-remembered smells of ink and whitewash. They would find nephews and cousins in the lower forms, and present them with enormous wealth. Or they would invade the gymnasium and make Foxy show off the new stock on the bars. Chiefly, though, they talked with the head, who was Father Confessor and Agent General to them all. For what they shouted in their unthinking youth, they proved in their thoughtless manhood, to wit, that the Pushan Bates was a downy bird. Young Blood had stumbled into an entanglement with a pastry-cook's daughter at Plymouth. Experience, who had come into a small legacy but mistrusted lawyers, ambition halting at a crossroads, anxious to take the one that would lead him farthest, extravagance pursued by the money-lender, arrogance in the thick of a regimental row, each carried his trouble to the head. And Churton showed him, in language quite unfit for little boys, a quiet and safe way round, out, or under. So they overflowed his house, smoked his cigars, and drank his health, as they had drunk it all the earth over, when two or three of the old school had foregathered. "'Don't stop smoking for a minute,' said the head. "'The more you're out of training, the better for us. I've demoralized the first fifteen with extra chew. Ah, oh, but we're a scratch lot. Have you told them we shall need a substitute, even if Crandall can play?' said a lieutenant of engineers with a DSO to his credit. He wrote me he'd play, so he can't be much hurt. He's coming down tomorrow morning. Crandall Minor that was, and brought off poor Duncan's body. The head nodded. Where are you going to put him? We've turned you out of house and home already, Head Sahib. This was a squadron commander of Bengal Lancers home on leave. Oh, I'm afraid he'll have to go up to his old dormitory. You know, old boys can claim that privilege. Yes, I think little Crandall Minor must bed down there once more. Bates Saib, a gunner flung a heavy arm round the head's neck. You've got something up your sleeve. Confess, I know that twinkle. Can't you see a cuckoo? A submarine miner interrupted. Crandall goes up to the dormitory as an object lesson. For moral effect and so forth. Isn't that true, Head Saib? It is. You know too much, Purvis. I licked you for that in seventy-nine. You did, sir. And it's my private belief you chalked the cane. No but I've a very straight eye. Perhaps that misled you." That opened the floodgates to fresh memories, and they all told tales out of school. When Crandall Minor that was, Lieutenant R. Crandall of an ordinary Indian regiment, arrived from Exeter on the morning of the match, he was cheered along the whole front of the school, for the prefects had repeated the sense of that which the head had read them in Flint's study. When Prout's house understood that he would claim his old boy's right, for, to a bed for one night. Beetle ran into King's house next door, and executed a public gloat up and down the enemy's big form-room, departing in a haze of ink-pots. "'What do you take notice of those rotters for?' said Storky, playing substitute for the old boys, magnificent in black jersey, white knickers, and black stockings. "'I talked to him up in the dormitory when he was changing. Pulled his sweater down for him.' He's cut all, about all over the arms, horrid purply ones. He's going to tell us about it tonight. I asked him to when I was lacing up his boots. 
"'Well, you have got cheek,' said Beetle enviously. "'Slipped out before I thought, but he wasn't a bit angry. He's no end of a chap. I swear I'm going to play up like the beans. Tell Turkey.' The technique of that match belongs to a bygone age. Scrimmages were tight and enduring. Hacking was direct and to the purpose. And around the scrimmage stood the school, crying, "'Put on your heads and shove!' Towards the end, everybody lost all sense of decency, and mothers of day-boys too close to the touch-line heard language not included in the bills. There was no one actually carried off the field, but both sides felt happier when time was called, and Beetle helped Storky and McTurk into their overcoats. The two had met in the many-legged heart of things, and, as Storky said, had done each other proud. As they swaggered woodenly behind the teams, Substitutes do not rank as equals of hairy men. They passed a pony carriage near the wall, and a husky voice cried, "'Well played! Oh, well played, indeed!' It was Stetson Major, white-checked and hollow-eyed, who had fought his way to the ground under escort of an impatient coachman. "'Hello, Stetson,' said Storky, checking. "'Is it safe to come near you yet?' "'Oh, yes, I'm all right. They wouldn't let me out before.' but I had to come to the match. Your mouth looks pretty plummy. Turkey trod on it accidental done a purpose. Well, I'm glad you're better, because we owe you something. You and your membranes got us into a sweet mess, young man. <laughs> I heard of that, said the boy, giggling. The head told me. Doosie did. When? Oh, come on up to Col. My shin'll stiffen if we stay joined here. Shut up, Turkey. I want to find out about this. Well? He was staying at our house all the time I was ill. What for? Neglecting the coal that way. Thought he was in town. I was off my head, you know, and they said I kept calling for him. Cheek, you're only a day boy. He came just the same. He just about saved my life. I was all bunged up one night, just going to croak, the doctor said. And they stuck a tube or something in my throat, and the head sucked out the stuff. Ugh, shot if I would. He ought to have got diphtheria himself, the doctor said. So he stayed at our house instead of going back. I'd have croaked in another twenty minutes, the doctor says. Here the coachman, being under orders, whipped up and nearly ran over the three. My hat, said Beetle. That's pretty average heroic. Pretty average? McTurk's knee in the small of his back cannoned him into Storky, who punted him back. You ought to be hung. And the head ought to get the V.C., said Storky. Why, he might have been dead and buried by now, but he wasn't. And he didn't. Ho, ho! He just nipped through the hedge like a lusty old blackbird, extra special, five hundred lines, and gated for a week, all sereno. I've read of something like that in a book, said Beetle. Gummy, what a chap! Just think of it. I'm thinking, said McTurk. And he delivered a wild Irish yell that made the team turn round. Shut your fat mouth, said Storky dancing with impatience. Leave it to your Uncle Storky, and he'll have the head on toast. If you say a word, Beetle, till I give you leave, I swear I'll slay you. Habeo capitem criminibus minimis. I've got him by the short hairs. Now look as if nothing had happened. There was no need of guile. The school was too busy cheering the drawn match. It hung round the lavatories regardless of muddy boots while the team washed. It cheered Crandall Minor whenever it caught sight of him, and it cheered more wildly than ever after prayers, because the old boys in evening dress 
openly twirling their moustaches, attended, and instead of standing with their masters, ranged themselves along the wall immediately before the prefects, and the head called them over too, majors, minors, tertiuses, after their old names. "'Yes, it's all very fine,' he said to his guests after dinner, "'but the boys are getting a little out of hand. There will be trouble and sorrow later, I'm afraid. You better turn in early, Crandall. The dormitory will be sitting up for you. I don't know what dizzy heights you may climb in your profession, but I do know you'll never have such absolute adoration as you're getting now. Confound the adoration! I want to finish my cigar, sir. It's all pure gold. Go where the glory waits, Crandall Minor." The setting of that apotheosis was a ten-bed attic dormitory, communicating through doorless openings with three others. The gas flickered over the raw pine washstands. There was an incessant whistling of draughts, and outside the naked windows the sea beat on the pebble ridge. "'Same old bed, same old mattress, I believe,' said Crandall, yawning. "'Same old everything. Oh, but I'm lame. I have no notion you chaps could play like this.' He caressed a battered shin. "'You have given us all something to remember you by.' It needed a few minutes to put them at their ease, and in some way they could not understand. They were more easy when Crandall turned round and said his prayers, a ceremony he had neglected for some years. "'Oh, I am sorry. I have forgotten to put out the gas.' "'Oh, please don't bother,' said the prefect of the dormitory. "'Worthington does that.' A nightgowned twelve-year-old, who had been waiting to show off, leaped from his bed to the bracket and back again by way of a washstand. "'How do you manage when he's asleep?' said Crandall, chuckling. "'Shove a cold cleek down his neck. "'It was a wet sponge when I was a junior in the dormitory. "'Hallo, what's happening?' "'The darkness had filled with whispers. "'The sound of trailing rugs, bare feet on bare boards, "'protests, giggles, and threats such as, "'Be quiet, you ass! Squat if you on the floor, then! "'I swear you aren't going to sit on my bed! "'Mind the tooth-glass! etc.' Star Corcoran said, the prefect began, his tone showing his sense of Storky's insolence, that perhaps you'd tell us about that business with Duncan's body. Yes, 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 ran the keen whispers. Tell us. Well, there's nothing to tell. What on earth are you chaps hopping about in the cold for? Never mind us, said the voices. Tell about Fat Sow. So Crandall turned his pillow and spoke to the generation he could not see. Well, about three months ago he was commanding a treasure guard, a cart full of rupees to pay the troops with, five thousand rupees in silver. He was coming to a place called Fort Pearson, near Calabag. "'I was born there,' squeaked a small fag. "'It was called after my uncle.' "'Shut up, you and your uncle. Never mind him, Crandall.' "'Well, never mind. The Afridis found out this treasure was on the move and they ambushed the whole show a couple of miles before it got to the fort, and cut up the escort. Duncan was wounded, and the escort hooked it. There weren't more than twenty sepoys all told, and there was any amount of Afridis. As things turned out, I was in charge at Fort Pearson. Fact was, I'd heard the firing. So I was just going to see about it when Duncan's men came up. So we all turned back together. They told me something about an officer but I couldn't get the hang of things until I saw a chap under the wheels of the cart out in the open, propped up on one arm, blazing away with a revolver. 
You see, the escort had abandoned the cart, and the Afridis, they're an awfully suspicious gang, thought the retreat was a trap. Sort of draw, you know. And the cart was the bait. So they'd left poor old Duncan alone. Minute they spotted how few we were, it was a race across the flat. Who should reach old Duncan first? We ran, and they ran, and we won. After a little hacking about, they pulled off. I never knew it was one of us, until I was right on top of him. There are heaps of Duncans in the service, and, of course, the name didn't remind me. He wasn't changed at all, hardly. He'd been shot through the lungs, poor old man. And he was pretty thirsty. I gave him a drink and sat down beside him. And, funny thing, too, he said, Hello, Toffee. And I said, Hello, Fat Sal. Hope you aren't hurt, or something of the kind. But he died in a minute or two, and never lifted his head off my knees. I say, you chaps out there will get the death of cold. Better go to bed. All right, in a minute. But your cuts, your cuts. How did you get wounded? Well, that was when we were taking the body back to the fort. They came on again. There was a bit of a scrimmage. Did you kill anyone? Yeah, shouldn't wonder. Good night. Good night. Thank you, Crandall. Thanks awfully, Crandall. Good night. The unseen crowds withdrew. His own dormitory rustled into bed and lay silent for a while. I say, Crandall? Storky's voice was tuned to a wholly foreign reverence. Well, what? Suppose a chap found another chap croaking with diphtheria, all bunged up with it, and they stuck a tube in his throat, and the chap sucked the stuff out. What would you say? Um, said Crandall reflectively. I've only heard of one case, and that was a doctor, and he did it for a woman. Oh, this wasn't a woman, this was just a boy. Makes it all the finer, then. It's about the bravest thing a man can do. Why? Oh, well, I heard of a chap doing it, that's all. Then he's a brave man. Would you funk it? Rather, anybody would. Fancy dying of diphtheria in cold blood. Well, uh, uh, look here. The sentence ended in a grunt. For Storky had leaped out of bed, and with McTurk was sitting on the head of Beetle, who would have sprung the mine there and then. Next day, which was the last of the term, and given up to a few wholly unimportant examinations, began with wrath and war. Mr. King had discovered that nearly all his house—it lay, as you know, next door but one to Prout's in the long range of buildings—had unlocked the doors between the dormitories, and had gone in to listen to a story told by Crandall. He went to the head, clamorous, injured, appealing for he never approved of allowing so-called young men of the world to contaminate the morals of boyhood. Very good, said the head. He would attend to it. Well, I'm awfully sorry, said Crandall, guiltily. I don't think I told them anything they oughtn't to hear. Don't let them get in trouble on my account. Tuck, the head answered, with a ghost of a wink. "'Tisn't the boys that make trouble, it's the masters. However, Prout and King don't approve of dormitory gatherings on this scale, and one must back up the housemasters. Moreover, it's hopeless to punish two houses only, so late in the term. We must be fair and include everybody. Let's see. They have a holiday task for the Easters, which, of course, none of them will ever look at. We will give the whole school, except prefects and study boys, regular prep tonight, and the common room will have to supply a master to take it. We must be fair to all. Prep on the last night of the term. Phew! said Crandall. 
thinking of his own wild youth. I fancy there'll be larks. The school, frolicking among packed trunks, whooped down the corridor and gloating in the form rooms, received the news with amazement and rage. No school in the world did prep on the last night of the term. This thing was monstrous, tyrannical, subversive of law, religion, and morality. They would go into the form rooms, and they would take their degraded holiday task with them. But here they smiled, and speculated what manner of man the common room would send up against them. The lot fell on Mason, credulous and enthusiastic, who loved youth. No other master was anxious to take that prep, for the school lacked the steadying influence of tradition, and men accustomed to the ordered routine of ancient foundations found it occasionally insubordinate. The four long form-rooms, in which all below the rank of study-boys worked, received him with thunders of applause. Ere he had coughed twice, they favoured him with a metrical summary of the marriage laws of Great Britain, as recorded by the high priest of the Israelites, and commented on by the leader of the host. The lower forms reminded him that it was the last day, and that therefore he must take it all in play. When he dashed off to rebuke them, the lower fourth form and upper third began with one accord to be sick, loudly and realistically. Mr. Mason tried, of all vain things under heaven, to argue with them, and a bold soul at the back desk bade him take fifty lines for not holding up his hand before speaking. As one who prided himself upon the perfection of his English, this cut Mason to the quick, and while he was trying to discover the offender, the upper and lower second three form-rooms away, turned out the gas and threw ink-pots. It was a pleasant and stimulating prep. The study-boys and prefects heard the echoes of it far off, and the common-room at dessert smiled. Storky waited, watch in hand, till half-past eight. "'If it goes on much longer, the head'll come up,' said he. "'We'll tell the studies first, then the dorm-rooms. Look sharp!' He allowed no time for Beetle to be dramatic, or McTurk to drawl. They poured into study after study, told their tale, and went again, so soon as they saw they were understood, waiting for no comment while the noises of that unholy prep grew and deepened. By the door of Flint's study they met Mason flying towards the corridor. "'He's gone to fetch the head! Hurry up! Come on!' They broke into number twelve form-room, abreast and panting. The head, the head, the head! That call stilled the tumult for a minute, and Storky, leaping to a desk, shouted, He went and sucked the diphtheria stuff out of Stetson Major's throat when we thought he was in town. Stop rotting, you asses! Stetson Major would have croaked if the head hadn't done it. The head might have died himself. Crandall says it's the bravest thing any living man can do. And I— His voice cracked. The head don't know we know. McTurk and Beetle, jumping from desk to desk, drove the news home among the junior forms. There was a pause, and then, Mason behind him, the head entered. It was in the established order of things that no boy should speak or move under his eye. He expected the hush of awe. He was received with cheers, steady, ceaseless cheering. Being a wise man, he went away, and the forms were silent and a little frightened. "'It's all right,' said Storky. "'He can't do much. "'Tisn't as if you'd pulled the desks up like we did when old Carlton took prep once. "'Keep it up. "'Hear them cheering in the studies? 
he rocketed out with a yell to find Flint and the prefects lifting the roof off the corridor. When the head of a limited liability company paying four per cent is cheered on his saintly way to prayers, not only by fourth-form rooms of boys waiting punishment, but by his trusted prefects, he can ask for an explanation, or go his road with dignity, while the senior housemaster glares like an excited cat, and points out to a white and trembling mathematical master that certain methods, not his, thank God, usually produce certain results. Out of delicacy the old boys did not attend that call-over, and it was to the school drawn up in the gymnasium that the head spoke icily. It is not often that I do not understand you, but I confess I do not to-night. Some of you, after your rather idiotic performance at prep, seem to think me a fit person to cheer. I am going to show you that I am not. Crash! 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 came the triple cheer that disproved it, and the head glowering under the gas. That is enough. You will gain nothing. The little boys—the lower school did not like that form of address—will do me three hundred lines apiece in the holidays. I shall take no further notice of them. The upper school will do me one thousand lines apiece in the holidays, to be shown up the evening of the day they come back, and further— Gummy, what a glutton! Storky whispered. For your behaviour towards Mr. Mason, I intend to lick the whole of the upper school to-morrow, when I give you your journey money. This will include the three study boys I found dancing on the form-room desks when I came up. Prefix will stay after call-over." The school filed out in silence, but gathered in groups by the gymnasium door, waiting for what might befall. "'And now, Flint,' said the head, "'would you be good enough to give me some explanation of your conduct?' "'Well, sir,' said Flint, desperately. If you save a chap's life at the risk of your own, when he's dying of diphtheria, and the coal finds it out, well, what can you expect, sir?" Um, I see. Then that noise was not meant for, ah, uh, cheek. I can connive at immorality, but I cannot stand impudence. However, it does not excuse their insolence to Mr. Mason. I'll forego the lines this once, but the lickings hold good. When this news was made public, the school, lost in wonder and admiration, gasped at the head as he went to his house. There was a man to be reverenced. On the rare occasions when he caned he did it very scientifically, and the execution of a hundred boys would be epic, immense. "'It's all right, head Sabe, we know,' said Crandall, as the head slipped off his gown with a grunt in his smoking-room. "'I found out just now from our substitute.' He was getting my opinion of your performance last night in the dormitory. I didn't know then that it was you he was talking about, crafty young animal. Freckled chap with eyes. Corcoran, I think his name is." "'Oh, I know him, thank you,' said the head, reflectively. "'Yes. I should have included them, even if I hadn't seen them. If the old coal weren't a little above themselves already, we'd chair you down the corridor,' said the engineer. Oh, Bates, how could you? You might have caught it yourself. And where would we have been then? I always knew you were worth twenty of us any day. Now I'm sure of it," said the squadron commander, looking round for contradictions. He isn't fit to manage a school, though. Promise you'll never do it again, Bates Sahib. 
we, we we can't go away comfy in our minds if you take these risks said the gunner bait sahib you aren't ever going to cane the whole upper school are you said crandall i can connive at immorality as i said but i can't stand impudence mason's lot is quite hard enough even when i back him besides the men at the golf club heard them singing aaron and moses i shall have complaints about that from the parents of day boys decency must be preserved we are coming to help said all the guests the upper school were cane one after the other their overcoats over their arms the brakes waiting in the road below to take them to the station their journey money on the table the head began with Storky, McTurk, and Beetle. He dealt faithfully by them. And here's your journey money. Good-bye, and pleasant holidays. Good-bye, thank you, sir. Good-bye. They shook hands. A desire don't outrun performance much this morning. We got the cream of it, said Storky. Now wait till a few chaps come out, and we'll really cheer him. Oh, don't wait in our account, please, said Crandall speaking for the old boys. We're going to begin now. It was very well, so long as the cheering was confined to the corridor. But when it spread to the gymnasium, when the boys awaiting their turn cheered, the head gave it up in despair, and the remnant flung themselves upon him to shake hands. Then they seriously devoted themselves to cheering, till the brakes were hustled off the premises in dumb show. Didn't I say I'd get even with him? said Storky on the box-seat, as they swung into the narrow northern street. Now, all together, taking it in time for your Uncle Storky. It's a way we have in the army, it's a way we have in the navy, it's a way we have at the public schools, which nobody can deny. End of chapter 6 A Little Prep